So this is Acts chapter 16, and this begins in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the church, churches, were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, or Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is God's word, and let's ask his help to understand it and to obey it. Father in heaven... We thank you for another Sunday. We thank you for each other. We thank you for the truth of hymns to sing in your direction. We thank you for the encouragement that we have heard or felt from others. We thank you for something like Operation Christmas Child. We thank you for something to do with our children that can help us teach what it means to send the gospel to places we may never go. And Lord, we thank you for your word that is going to show us how these things took place. And how we are to understand when is a door open and when is a door closed? And what do we do accordingly? Lord, we ask that you give us these answers. We ask that you help us obey. And we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever thought through the the question, and this has to do with uh, church ministry in general. Use Wake Chapel as an example. But when we're involved in the Great Commission, which is something that the Lord gave his disciples before he ascended into heaven, and that has been our charge each generation accordingly, um, what are we supposed to do, and what is God supposed to do, and where's the line between those two? Or is there a line? Maybe the line is fuzzy. Maybe it overlaps in places. 
But have you ever thought, this can't be all about us, and it can't be done without us here as it wasn't done without the disciples. God has chosen to use us, but of course he's sovereign, so he must be directing behind the scenes. But in this passage, we actually get to see behind the scenes at how some of these things come to be, even if there's confusion in the middle of it until hindsight makes it clear. But if you take Wake Chapel, for example, we're congregationally ruled, we're elder-led, that's the Bible's word for pastoral staff. And the way it works is that business is concluded or done through a process And the church will rule on those things that are brought to those meetings. And hopefully, if everything's working correctly, the staff that they've chosen and paid with their education and experience, it all works well. The ruling, though, is in the hands of the congregation who can throw a pastor out on his ear if he needs it. Why would he need it? Not being faithful to the Scripture or using his position for abuse or self-interest or whatever else. That's the church's authority. Now, if it's all working well, they are supposed to submit to the leadership within the church. We see that working here. So all that to say, there's a process for such things. But that's the way we operate here under the sun. What is God doing on the other side? When we want to do something, if it's add an extra program or build a new building, there's a process. But where's the line between God's directing that agenda and ours? Do we just make this stuff up as we go? Oh, we want a new building. Why? Well, so we'll have more space. Why? Well, so when we want to leave the service and go to the bathroom, we can go out the back instead of the front. That's one reason. But unless you sometime get to the point so we can win lost souls for the sake of Jesus Christ, then you, there is no line with the Lord's direction. We're just kind of making this up as we go. There's, there's got to be both. You could say the same thing about a Christian's personal affairs individually within their home. Uh, say for important stuff like who, whom are you to marry? You know, at some point, the rest of the world is going to recognize that you've made a decision to spend your life and promise yourself to one person out of all the other options the planet has available. That's a big choice. But then when you look back, who do you blame for all that? Yourself or the Lord bringing the two of you together for his glory and perhaps for his ministry? It's both going on, but you'd admit it's kind of hard to figure out where it happens. I think, if anything we tend to overestimate our role in the situation because as good Americans, we can fix anything if we've got the right people and the right stuff, right? Um, We betray those sort of interests when we say things like, why can't Washington fix the economy? I mean, they're professionals. We put them in place. The economy's only got about four or five working parts, right? No, it's very complicated, But we want to think that it could be fixed yesterday or lower the price of gasoline. Just tell whoever we're buying the stuff from, we're not going to pay that. Eventually, they'll bring it down under $2. Easy. Done. If I was in charge. But it's not always that simple. What about the traffic in Fuquay? Can that be fixed? Who needs railroads? That's the problem, isn't it? Rip them up. 
Give them a, 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 a bridge to put the train on. Who knows? We talk like this. I want to see my doctors when I want to see them. Nobody else lives in this town. Uh, I want to walk into the DMV and renew my tags when I want to instead of making an appointment for a month later and taking off work. Why can't they be open at night? We got this idea, if we want it, we can do it, right? That is not what we see in our New Testaments and especially in the book of Acts. You don't hear these guys saying, if we had the right emperor... You know, it's Nero that's going to take Paul's head off. We say if we had the right president, right town manager, right school board, right coach, right pastor, maybe we can get back or get to where or whatever. We can do all this the way we think it should be done, and then we'll be happy. Only problem is everybody in the world thinks that way, and we can't all be right. So as Christians, the kingdom of God, the Great Commission... Is it true that there's some things we just can't fix, just can't engineer, you just can't finagle? You're going to be dependent on God's movement, and it'll happen if he's moving or it won't if he's not. I think that's what we see in Scripture. So even some of the seemingly successful efforts that we, we would lay claim and credit to are basically just the open-door compliments of our sovereign Lord. He opened it. We walked through it. We may think it was our idea, our idea, but eventually he'll get the credit. So this passage is about open doors and closed doors and who's opening and who's closing. If you look at verse 1, there are three paragraphs that we read. The first one has to do with Timothy joining Paul and Silas. second one has to do with a dream about a Macedonian man. And the third one has to do with this woman named Lydia and her heart being opened understand what Paul was saying. But in that first paragraph, uh, they're going backward, different than they talked about in chapter 15, but visiting some of the churches they'd been to before. Derby, then Lystra, and in Lystra is where they find Timothy, who was likely saved or converted on the previous trip during the first missionary journey. And it's Paul who wants to take Timothy with him further on the trip with Silas. But verse 3 leaves us scratching our heads, especially if we've been here the last few weeks, and the whole battle over whether or not circumcision is necessary to be a Christian. That's all of chapter 15. And then we read in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So you've got... uh, young man whose father is a Greek and his mother is a Jewess. Now, in the Jewish thought, he's Jewish because the half-Jewishness counts for more than half because it's Jewishness. So, he's, he's a Jew, though he's got a Greek for a dad, which means he's probably not marked in his flesh according to the covenant. Now, Paul just fought this whole war over whether or not that's part of salvation. Why would he encourage Timothy to submit to this? Well, because he's a Jew and because his audience is Jewish. Now, in a different spot, round two with this, there's Titus, who's a Greek. 
And he's speaking to Greeks on the island of Crete. And Paul says, absolutely no. We're not doing this. It's not necessary. So why is it necessary in one situation and not necessary in another? What is Paul doing? And some of the commentators come out of the woodwork to say he's compromised or conflicted, changing his mind, waffling, indecisive. Not at all, I don't think. I think what we get in this first paragraph, the lesson is the issue is how far must we go to be all things to all people in the case of an open door? The door's open. Might it help to drop something at the door before you go in? And what would you drop? What could you drop? What are you willing to drop? And what would you never drop? I think that's what's going on here. You could call it principle versus prudence. You could call it confrontation versus accommodation. And people, you know, what does this have to do with an open door? Everything. Because if you have an open door, it's possible that you could shut it yourself by the way you act. I don't know if you've ever... I doubt anybody would ever be in this boat. You're with your family, extended family. Let's say you're middle-aged, which would mean your parents are older than you. And somebody starts a conversation you wish was never brought up because you know that dinner is more important than that topic but there's someone else at the table who considers that topic a whole lot more important than dinner. <laughs> Makes for a fun dinner, doesn't it? Some of you are laughing. Others of you go, what is, what is he talking about? How, when, when did he overhear my dinner? I didn't overhear your dinner. I'm talking about dinners we've had with our family. Sometimes principle is of paramount importance. Sometimes prudence is of paramount importance. It all depends on the topic and the conversation and what's on the line. Is it life or death on the line? With, with Timothy, a Jew, it's not the gospel that, that's at issue because they've already fought over what the gospel is and people still value circumcision. But if Timothy's going to be able to be heard by these otherwise closed-minded people, He's going to need to submit himself to part of their cultural norms. Small concession, Paul would say. Timothy's probably saying, small concession, what? (laughs) You were a baby. I'm an adult. But they did it anyway in order to keep the door open and to have the conversation. Now, in Titus' situation, it could be the gospel. Doing that could confuse these people such that they think that that's necessary, even though you're saying that it's not. So because of the context, it's it's a bigger issue and absolutely not. You've probably, uh, maybe, visited churches where uh, it seems as if the audience is sovereign. And a lot of money and effort goes into figuring out what that audience wants to hear and then giving whoever the preacher is the mechanism for telling them what they want to hear. You can build an empire doing that. Keep them happy. They'll pay for what they want. Now, you may have visited churches where the opposite's true. The other end of the extreme where the pastor thinks he's sovereign. 
So he's going to tell the people not what they want to hear, but what he thinks they need to hear and probably not what the Bible knows they need to hear. And then it's just a bunch of hobby horses or axes to grind. And routinely and regularly, the guy leans into people, wades into them and tells them how it is. That's the other extreme. He'd call it principle. The other would be called accommodation. But in such extremes, neither one of them is faithful to the gospel. The gospel has to get its witness. Some people may say, I didn't like what the pastor had to say. Well, what was he saying? His two cents are God's word. Then you can kind of differentiate what's at, what's at play. So when do we apply prudence? When do we apply principle? When the gospel's on the line, Paul applied both, but not in the same situation. This here in chapter 16 wasn't about the gospel. It was about a hearing. And he's ready to try to keep that door open. So not wanting to be an obvious door slammer, he had Timothy circumcised to remove the stumbling block, which would have most certainly prevented their reception. He knew they couldn't get over it. Evidently, he thought Timothy could. So if these verses tell us about a door that Paul didn't want shut, you get to the next paragraph, we've got a lesson about a door that God didn't want to open. The opposite. Look at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Headed to Asia. They need the gospel too. Holy Spirit says, no, I want you headed for Europe. Now, if you're Paul and you're on your way to Asia, something's got to turn you around, right? Does Luke tell us specifically what changed their mind or made it obvious? No. We wish they did. I'm sure there's classes in heaven uh, called Inquiring Minds Want to Know 101, and you can get all the answers to all these questions. I want to know. If you go further, he says, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, which is the same as this Holy Spirit, uh, not the same person, but the same God, did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And that's where Paul has this vision. Macedonian man, very famous passage of Scripture. Get to verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we. That's interesting. That's the first we. Now, if you're saying we and you're the writer, what does that mean? You're there too. Eyewitness at this point. It was other witnesses up until this point. He carries that through the rest of the sentence. Sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I think there's probably more of us that would say, that paragraph speaks to our own experience, maybe more so than the first one. I wanted to do this, that, or the other, and it just didn't work out. My daddy used to say all the time in his preaching, life seldom turns out the way you expected. And I used to sit there in that section, youth group, and go, well, maybe he's just too rigid. Life's not perfect. I get that. But I hadn't been hurt yet at that point. I hadn't said goodbye to anyone. You get a little older and you realize, no, it doesn't. It's not quite how you expected. A lot of it is 
out of the blue, surprise, never saw it coming. And that seems to be true here. Um, Paul must have been confused, but then things come together. And out of the scholars and the commentaries, I think that what I liked the best was to think of this as Luke painting a picture, obviously after the events took place. And it's easy for Luke, looking from hindsight, at what and at the moment looked like difficulty and confusion and bad luck or indecisiveness, you name it. But all along, it's God's guidance behind the scenes. And usually it takes us a good distance looking back to figure that out. This lesson, I think, is, is maybe more important. I don't know if you want to call it important, but, but more helpful to keep in one's pocket because of something else that takes all the attention from this paragraph but seems to leave us maybe with more questions. What about this vision business? Any of you have visions? Ever seen a Macedonian man? Any kind of man in a dream? Maybe your boss or something, but you were like in a place that neither one of you would be and, you know, your project's not done or, you know... Pastors have those dreams about showing up here with, like, you know, the board shorts on or something. Um, everybody has weird dreams, right? This is no weird dream. This dream, this vision, steers the trajectory of the second missionary journey. I don't have dreams, though. Maybe you have dreams. I don't have dreams. I wish I had dreams that would tell me what to do, but that's not the way life works out. None of these men in Acts or in the New Testament, for that matter, are actively searching for visions. It's not like they just said, Lord, we don't know what to do, so we're going to sit down until you break through and tell us in a dream or a vision or write it in the sky. We don't care, but we're not moving. No, they were moving, and God turned them around. He interjects this, and that's how it always happens. The lesson is not to search for visions or feelings of peace to guide you as a Christian. That's the way it worked, but that's not the way it works now. Um, how many of you heard somebody say, I'm just praying, I've I, I got to make a decision, and I'm asking for peace? I don't know about that either. Um, most of the time when I'm in a spot where I'm praying hard about something I don't know what to do, Peace is the last emotion available to my brain, much less my heart. And why would you ever trade a feeling in your heart for the logic in your brain? I'm going to, that's just my personality. If I'm going to do something, I need more than a feeling. And I've actually sat across the desk and listened to someone who said, I want to be happy. My marriage is over. I've prayed about it. And the Lord has given me peace to dissolve the relationship. I'm like, along with a clear understanding of biblical grounds for divorce, because this relationship is what God chose to show us, his permanent relationship with us, you got to tell me before you blow this up that it's more than just your happiness or a feeling of peace, which is a lie from the devil, because the Lord would never tell you to do that. That was basically the end of that counseling session. <laughs> 
But what, what does that mean? What is a feeling? What, what, what is a dream? I would, would call for more. And if you notice, it was a we and an us that worked on that vision and concluded that God was calling them to go that direction. It wasn't just an individual. It was a group. God works in mysterious ways, but it's not always like that. The lesson is not to search for visions or feelings of peace to guide you. No, what we are to do is to be prepared for when our plans are not God's plans. That would serve you better. Just resolve in your understanding, your, your uh, what do they call that, constitution, that I'm going to be prepared for the Lord to absolutely obliterate my plans if my plans aren't his plans. And then adjust accordingly. That might be the dangerous, most dangerous prayer you could ask. Lord, make me flexible. That's like saying, Lord, show me my sin. I think he'll do it. I think he'll make you flexible. It might be an awful remedial class in Christian maturity to have to be busted down to where you're able to become pliable and and flexible. But it looks like that's what these men were. This is G. Campbell Morgan, one of my favorite... Uh, commentaries he says about this passage here is the revelation of the fact that the spirit guides not by flaming visions always not by words articulate in human ears but by circumstances by commonplace things by difficult things by dark things by disappointing things the spirit guides and molds and fashions all the pathway The important thing, however, is that the man whom the Spirit will guide is the man who is in the attitude in which it is possible for the Spirit to guide him. There is where we too often fail. It is when a man is in fellowship with the Lord that he sees that the disappointment and the difficulty are also under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. If we make up our minds that the way of guidance is in the way of the flaming vision or an articulate voice, and a lifting to heights of ecstasy, we may never be guided. What was it? The still small voice, not in the whirlwind, not in the fire, but in a small prompting that corresponds with Scripture. Instead of looking for a feeling, open up your Bible and start reading. Listen to the promises God has already given you, the things we're already supposed to be obeying. He'll pull you back together and point you in the direction you should be going, even if it's the one you've been on for forever. It's called faithfulness. Looking back, the hand of God is most prominent at the very time it was most invisible. It could be said of verses 6 through 10. And maybe the reason why... Paul would tell this guy, Timothy, way downstream when Timothy's a pastor himself. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Timothy, just keep going. Stay faithful. Do what you know to do and do it well. And even if it looks like everything's a mess, you look back and you'll find out it was an ordained mess, perhaps and for the glory of God. These were doors thought to be open, but were actually closed. And uh, I'm looking at my clock. I'd love to tell you the story of where I thought I would be five or six years ago. 
You all know where I am right now. But that was not my plan. That was the Lord's plan and a very hard lesson over years worth of experience to see that and wouldn't change it or trade it for anything. This is one of those situations, you be God, I'll be quiet. Show me what to do. But that's a hard saying. All right, God reserves the right to surprise us. How about Lydia's heart is open to believe? That's the third paragraph. And it's a fresh page, it seems. Um, And we're going to see how sometimes in your personal growth as a Christian, the wind is at your back. Sometimes it's in your face. This paragraph and the ones following have both uh, three events that Luke chooses to close out the chapter. The first is the conversion of Lydia. We'll, We'll look at that now. Second is the exorcism of a slave girl who was worth a lot of money to her handlers, which started a fight, which would kick off a riot, which would involve beatings and imprisonment for these people we're reading of. And then an open door for a Philippian jailer who's going to utter with his mouth, what must I do to be saved? Now, you may have been a Christian for a long time. You may have been in ministry for a long time. I've been in it over 20 years. I've never heard anyone say those words. You probably hadn't either. I mean, it's about as wide open of a door you could drive an entire convoy of Mack trucks through it. That's what's coming. But there's going to be difficulty, confusion. There's going to be the glory of God. It's all there. High adventure next week. Make sure you tune in. Same church, same pew, same chapel. (laughs) same time the setting is now philippi the city has a colorful dramatic past it's a roman colony rome colonized it with a whole passel use that word much of roman retired military imagine what the the culture must have been like Um, but in verse 11 so setting sail from troas made a direct voyage to samothrace following that day to neapolis and there to philippi remained in the city some days, which is a generic timestamp, which has the idea that he's resting and that he's going to stay a while. I love that. I like hearing that someone as wide open as Paul the Apostle takes a breather. Uh, Life happens or growth happens at the speed of life, not the speed of light like we'd like it to. Don't worry about raising your kids. Do it one day at a time. And, and don't, don't give any of them up those days. Uh, if you wait till they're at eye level, it might be too late. If you start before they've even spoken. My daddy came to the delivery room and took all four of mine out of my hands, went to the corner or window, and started with Genesis 1 in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And then I could hear him saying, don't let anybody talk you out of that. That's where it all starts. The rest of the Bible's easy peasy if you believe those 10 words. He would start with my, he, that's what he did with us. Go slow. Take rests. Rome wasn't built in a day. Neither were your children raised. We got a problem with being way too much in a hurry. When I found out Paul the Apostle wasn't, even though it seems he was, that's, that's a good piece of information. So, the flag of the gospel has been planted on the outskirts of Rome. Europe has now been claimed for Christ. Paul takes a rest. 
And then a specific time stamp in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, which is what all the rest of the summaries sound like, but now it changes. We went outside the gate to the riverside where supposedly there was a place of prayer. So it's Sabbath, but they're not going to the synagogue, which is where they always start, because evidently there is no synagogue in Philippi. It only took 10 Jewish men for a synagogue. If you didn't have 10 men, no synagogue. And because we don't read of one, and that's not where they started, it's probably the case. So this place of prayer, which you you read about some of that in the Old Testament, what the children of Israel did in exile when they didn't have a temple or a, a synagogue, they would gather and they would pray often by a river. That's what they're doing here. And then verse 14 gives us the specifics. There was one who heard us, a woman named Lydia, city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, worshiper of God. That's quite an introduction. It's strange. Usually women aren't mentioned by name unless they're a widow. That's possible. We don't know that for sure. Uh, It could have been that Lydia was her trading business as name. Some have speculated uh, because the very place where they were, Thyatira, is situated where there once had been the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And that word with that business selling of purples, very costly, uh, it's a dye that you get from squished up snails, uh, but made for beautiful articles of clothing. This woman was well-to-do. Was she single? Who knows? Was that her real name? We don't know. But what we do know is that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's the gold out of this whole passage, in my humble opinion. Because if there's one thing the Bible is clear that we cannot do and will never do, it's open the heart to receive the Lord. Now, we may collect money and build a building. We may put together and staff a children's ministry. We may put together an outreach ministry, the likes of which hasn't been seen yet. Churches do this type of thing all the time. And as cultures change, so do the methods. But at the end of the day, and at the end of the age, it's God who opens the heart in order to see the truth for what it is. That is brilliant for a guy whose job it is to explain the scriptures. Because there were times where I sat in a class thinking, it's all on me and my cleverness, my words, to persuade someone to believe this story that heretofore in their mind seemed a great story but too good to be true. Now, if that's the case, then am I not charged to manipulate the will such to bend desire. I mean, we're basically down to the the, uh, economy of of capitalism. Billboards are very powerful instruments of suggestion. This car will get you noticed. Not really. But they might think that you might think in order to part with your cash. It's manipulation, salesmanship, 
Is Paul a salesman? No. He talked about the foolishness of preaching, how he absolutely got rid of everything but Christ and him crucified so that when it's said and done, everyone knows it's only God that's doing this because there's nothing of any worth for any man to boast about. It's the foolishness of preaching. So he opened her heart. She was baptized and she's part of the family. Lydia is the first convert in Europe. This is ground zero, the base of operations, the foothold of Almighty God to evangelize the cultural capital of the world. And it starts with an open heart of a purple saleswoman. Only God would do something like this because only God can open the heart. What did he tell Nicodemus when Nicodemus said, I'm having trouble here. You're talking about a man getting back into his mother's womb. And Jesus said, no. It's like the wind. You, you feel the effects of the wind. But you can't see it. And you certainly can't control it. It blows where it wants to. Someone's heart is strangely warmed as we sing through. Uh, and can it be? Chains fall off. I go forth and follow thee. Why? That was absurd before. God's opened your heart. But because of a good speaker? No, because of the clarity of his word. You go from couldn't care less to I've got to know more. Actually wanting to know your Bible and to know the God of the Bible. If that's your inclination, don't brush that off. If you've got questions, we can help you look for the answers. If you're visiting, talk to the person that brought you. If you want to talk to one of us, grab us before we get in our car. We'd love to meet you anyway. Or call the office. We can sit down for longer. But when the Lord begins to open the heart, the person is compelled to listen. Because whoever he calls, he's going to justify. Whoever he justifies, he's going to glorify. There's a few more steps in there. It's hard to know the progress. Sanctification feels long and arduous. But folks, we're going we're gonna to close this with a, with a hymn. I think it's the perfect one to close it with. David Brown does a great job matching our songs to the scripture. But try this on. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. It's free, but you have to believe, like Lydia did. All who are longing to see his face... Will you this moment his grace receive? The song is a question. The question is for the heart that's opening. If he's already opened your heart, then why don't you pray for someone who's shut and ask if you can be instrumental in helping them with the truth. As the Holy Spirit does his job, we do our job. But with that said, before we sing, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for grace and Lord we thank you most of all for the opening of the heart and not putting that burden on us and Lord I pray for those who are confused and think that that's the case is it an excuse to lazily tell the gospel or to preach a sermon no 
We learn in the same passage that men were willing to submit themselves in painful ways in order to take advantage of an open door. Lord, would you open doors? Would you keep opening them? Lord, would we see them and walk through them? Would we make ourselves available, even if it costs us time or rearranging our schedules? Lord, would it be said that we don't ignore an open door? Lord, we thank you. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.